1: Hi, this is Peter Donigan, and it's great to have your company for a very, very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Broadcasting has recently lost one of its greatest voices, my good friend Drew Morford. And as tribute to Drew's brilliant life, we'll replay our very special chat from 2015 when Drew was a guest on This Is Your Sporting Life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy one of the industry's gentlemen recount some of his favourite moments of his glowing career. <laughs> This is your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Thanks again for your company on another edition of This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Now, this year, we have pushed the show out to an hour, as we said. Last year's season was half an hour. We've pushed it out to an hour. I think I might make an exception this time, and we might push it out to about four hours because I think we're going to need it. Because my guest in the studio today is one of the most familiar faces and voices in Australian sports broadcasting. He has the Order of Australian, uh, Order of Australia Medal, and he is a broadcasting legend, and I'm happy to say he's been a good mate of mine for a long time. Drew Morfitt, welcome along.
0: PD, thanks very much for
1: having me. Lovely to see you as a winning owner uh, over the Flemington Carnival. Uh, Of course, we record this not long after the Flemington Carnival, but it was a carnival you won't forget in a hurry.
0: Well, it was unbelievable because I had a little share in a winner on Caulfield Cup Day and a little share in a winner on Melbourne Cup Day. Hmm. What a double. That'll never happen to me again in my life. I've been fiddling around having small shares in horses for about uh, 18 or 19 years. We've never won a race at Flemington, so we picked Cup Day to break the drought. It was just enormous. Look, the, the two races, uh, one, one horse was Andrioli. Uh, trained by Robert Smurden, who won on Caulfield Cup Day and then we had Invincible Heart trained by Mick Price who won on Melbourne Cup Day now I reckon both races were probably the worst races on the day and our horses weren't the best horses in the field Doesn't either matter. time but we got a champion ride from Craig Williams Caulfield Cup Day and a brilliant ride Craig Newitt on Melbourne Cup Day so thanks for the two Craigs that were up there. I did happen to mention to Mick
1: Price in the post uh, race interview that the celebration would probably be um, reasonably boisterous knowing you. Did you have one or two that night?
0: You know what? I watched the Melbourne Cup, the history-making Melbourne Cup with uh, 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 pain and and wear and it was unbelievable. I was up near the, the train. So I watched it on the big screen and I was on the train at about 10 past three. Race was run at three o'clock. I was on the train at 10 past three, drove in at home at uh, Pakenham South at about 10 past five. Uh, I reckon we had takeaway and clean skin reds. Wow. I, th- I would have thought it might have been a bit more uh, rowdy than that. No, it was pretty quiet. You know, when you've yeah, you got to get home and, and do things with horses and all that yeah. sort of stuff. So, you know, just couldn't wait to get the kit off and uh, get the shorts on and, you know, uh, sloth around at uh, at home.
1: I didn't know where you were going when you said get the kit off. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't read anything into it.
1: Um, I'll get back to your life with horses and all that sort of thing later in the program. Mm-hmm. But what about that moment, even though you saw it on the big screen? That moment that was 154 oh. years in the making, that was one of the most memorable
0: Melbourne Cups that we will ever see. We will ever see. Uh, it's right up there with, with Ollie reading, winning on Media Puzzle. But, yeah, to break through and to be the first female jockey to win the Melbourne Cup, uh, Frankie Dettori was second. Uh, Gerald Mosset was last. It wasn't his fault. The horse broke down, basically. Um, but you had these world-famous riders, and he was the only female rider in the event just showing them a clean pair of heels it was just fantastic Um, you know I've known a Reasonably well over a, a lot of years, you know. She plays in the in the cricket match for the Jockeys Trust, which I've done, you know, the commentary on stuff like that. So I know I know Michelle pretty well. Um, she's just a beautiful, uh, beautiful lady, uh, terrific rider. There was a photo on the front page of the Herald Sun. She had a, a pink or red dress on with a white uh, hat, and she looked every bit as good as all those models that they have taken their photos with horses leading up to the Spring Carnival. I and said
1: exactly was- the same thing when I saw her on Oaks Day. She would have been not out of place on the catwalk at Correct. Fashions on the Field. Yeah. Gorgeous. And, and a lovely young lady as mm. well. Yeah. Uh, what a moment. One that we'll never forget. Tell me,
0: when did Andrew Morfitt become Drew Morfitt? <laughs> uh, I haven't been Andrew since I was sitting on the wet grass and my mother would say, Andrew! <laughs> the wet grass, you'll get piles. <laughs> um, but I've had to become Andrew again because uh, it's Andrew on the passport and therefore it, on an air ticket, it's got to be Andrew. And I've said to so many people at the various airlines, can't I be Drew? Everyone knows me as Drew. No, well, what's come through is Andrew. So I said, what do you do with people like Bill, William, you know, it might be W. Allen, but everyone knows him as Bill Allen, Allen sort of thing. Anyway, so uh, there's a bit of Andrew. That's the official name, but uh, I've been Drew because my mother said, uh, I don't want my son to be called Andy. I hate it. So if you have to shorten it, Drew is, go- is what it's going to be. So I've been Drew for you. Donkeys, yes.
1: And when, when you were sitting on that wet grass as a young kid, that would have been probably in Sydney where you were born. Yeah, And yet here you are in Melbourne, which has been such a part of your life and a game that you probably knew nothing about in your early years has become a very big part of your life in AFL
0: football. Well, correct, weight on that. I knew absolutely nothing about the game. Started at the ABC in Sydney when I was 18. And the first time I came out of my cadetship, sort of about a two year period the first job that became available was Perth so I lobbed over in Perth and I didn't know how many blokes made up a team in Aussie rules knew nothing about the game whatsoever so I learned it from scratch over there made all the mistakes over there so hopefully there are people in the Pilbara and all that who can remember me saying you know kicks into touch and over the halfway line when I'm trying (laughs) to broadcast Aussie rules Uh, you know made all those mistakes I actually did the uh, carnival in Perth in 1972 and a bloke recently sent me um, a copy of it which was transferred from reel to reel tape onto a CD, and um, actually, it was half, half all right. I thought it'd be a disgrace because it was very early on in my it was 72s, album, a long time ago, mm. um, but it was half all right. I was broadcasting with George Griyasic, yes, and he broadcast the socks off me, of course. Uh, George would do about 20 minutes a quarter, and I'd do about five, yes, that, that was the sort of deal, um, but. You know, Peter McKenna was playing and uh, uh, Cable for Western Australia and Matthews for Victoria.
1: Take us back before you went to Perth. What ignited the spark in you about sports broadcasting? Was it a particular broadcaster who did it? Was it a, a series of events? Where did
0: that come from? Well, my father was a member of the Sydney Cricket Ground and he was dragging me out there to watch cricket and, and rugby league games uh, from the time I, I can pretty much remember. I remember, you know, uh, hitting a tennis ball against the wall out the back of the MA Noble stand when I was maybe seven or eight, that sort of thing. Um, and I just... I, uh, there was a bloke, a ball fella named Ray... He was a he was a race caller, a trots caller or something. Until for the life of me, now I can't think of his surname. And I can remember getting his autograph and he looked embarrassed that I'd asked him for his autograph because he thought, you know, there are cricketers and footballers around. Why would you be asking for my autograph? And actually, that's happened to me a few times. Well, I'm thinking... Turn it up, but I can understand how kids would see a bloke who's a who's a broadcaster and in a favoured spot, uh, who'd be a bit of a hero, and uh, and he was, um, you know, Rex Mossop. I grew up with Rex Mossop and Sydney's Juan Casey. You know. mm-hmm. um, but the the ABC blokes, um, you know, Alan McGilvray bro- broadcasting cricket, Norman May who could broadcast anything. And my first day at work, I w- walked into the office. There was McGilvray, May, Jeff Marnie. Um, I'm thinking, oh, this is unbelievable. Uh, It was like a, a kid in a lolly shop. It was fantastic.
1: And you couldn't have gone to a better place than the ABC because when you go there, you call everything. You don't go as a specialist and you get thrown in at the deep end sometimes, which is a great thing for broadcasters.
0: I can remember my boss one day sent me out to the Queen's Prize rifle shoot. And I said, I know nothing about rifle shooting. I was in the cadets at school and we had 303s and I couldn't hit a target from, from 30 yards, all that sort of stuff. And he said, you know what, if you're doing a sport that's a minor sport like that, you just get out there and find the reigning Australian champion and ask him about it, and he'll be un- he'll be flattered that somebody's asked him about his sport. Uh, it's a bit different if you're you know, talking cricket and football and stuff like that, but a so-called minor sport. Get hold of the Australian champion, ask him a few questions, and within half an hour, you'll know all about the sport. And it's exactly what happened. So over the years, because I was at the ABC, I've done, gee, motorbikes at Calder. Um, I reckon I interviewed Peter Brock on the grid at Sandown in the second weekend of September, so I missed a a footy final, you know, eight, nine years in a row. Um, They weren't sports that I was absolutely, you know, uh, uh, dying to see, but once you get there, um, I've done lawn bowls. Um, I've never canned them up. But there have been plenty of sports I've never played, don't know anything about, but somehow you ask the right people, ask the right questions, you learn something about it.
1: And it also, as a broadcaster, helps you to think on your feet because there is no way that you can have dead air going to air. Something, especially on radio, you have to be saying something and describing something, and even if you don't know anything about it, and you're one of the great ones at being able to do this, that you were able to find the words even when you might have been struggling to find them.
0: We did the water skiing, didn't we? We did. (laughs) (laughs) We We don't know anything about that. That was good fun, though. (laughs) I
1: I love those days in the water skiing.
0: Yeah, uh, I can remember the, the year you said to me, Dandy Andy won the Australian Cup and we were no, concentrating right. on the men's slalom or something at the time. Um, you know, um, I don't know about filling dead air. Actually, on one of these blokes. I don't mind the odd bit of dead air because I was always taught that there are aspects to, bro- to a broadcast, especially a radio broadcast. There is speech, effects and silence Mm -hmm. and I was told never underestimate silence because if Dennis Lilly's at the top of his mark and he's bowling to Colin Cowdery with his arm in plaster and Lilly is bowling at the Whacker at 100 miles an hour with a roaring you know Fremantle doctor behind him and you paint that picture and pause for a second and a half and let the listener think Jesus Christ what's going through Cowdery's mind Mm. Um, a bit of pausing is great so I don't mind a little bit of So-called dead air. Yeah, but that's the difference
1: between you and other broadcasters, in particular on radio, because it's not dead air, because there's that sense of anticipation, the crowd is roaring, there's still the atmosphere, and that is, in my opinion, what makes you such a great broadcaster, that you feel the moment. You're very much a part of the moment. You're not only watching and describing what's going
0: on, but you're involved in the whole theatre of the thing. Gee, you do me a big favour. Um, well, I hope I hope I've uh, been able to do that. But a lot of it is just a bit of research, a lot of bullshit. <laughs> that's Australian yes. as well. Um, but yeah, feeling the moment. I'm, for instance, when Richie Benno died earlier this year, everybody said what a great man. That less is more. That his words were so clipped and minimal. That I mean, when Warney bowled the ball of the century, Richie took about three seconds to say anything. You know what he said? He's done it. And I thought, I don't think that's the greatest commentary I've ever heard in my life. Mm. He's done it. But every when he died, everybody said, what a great man Richie was for less is more. And uh, I'm happy to be in the school of a bit less is more. Yeah. Did you have much to do with Richie in your time broadcasting cricket? Uh, he wasn't all that um, uh, forthcoming in, in um, uh, certainly advice or um, even sort of... Uh, conversation really, uh, at the back of the media centre at the MCG, there's a little card table set aside and it's Richie's table. And Richie would sit there with his computer and everything. But he was never going through cricket stats or anything like that. He was, he was putting on his quaddy. So <laughs> you walk past and ask Richie what his best bet for the day was and you could get him going on something like that. Mm. Um, that's nearly the extent to which uh, my conversation went with Richie because I was just an underling and Richie was God. Honestly, and that's, that's how I treated him. He might have treated himself a bit like that too, just quite. The only
1: times I ever got to see Richie because I was not in your inner sanctum at the cricket in, in the broadcasting area, but I'd see him at the golf every now and then because oh, he was yeah. a regular in the media centre. Mm. Uh, he and Daphne at various times would yeah. pop into the media centre at the big golf tournaments when golf was really big in this country.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can remember when I was a kid in Perth, um, I'm I'm on my own in the office one day and I've got to prepare Sporting Highlights, which is a 15-minute radio program can be a bit of cricket, bit of footy, bit of racing, race results from, you know, Northam or something like that. And I thought, hmm, uh, I wonder if the, the draw for the Sheffield Shield is out yet. And, I mean, these days you could get it on the internet. Well, no trouble at all. But in those days you had to hunt it up. And Richie and Daphne were the, the media uh, uh, mouthpiece for Cricket Australia or the Australian Cricket Board as it was at the time. So I thought, hmm, I'll ring Richie. No, I won't ring him. I sent him a telex, which is... Yes. <laughs> you can't believe that I'm doing this. It's 40 years ago or something. And I sent him a telex, and it was something like, could please advise, if available, uh, Sheffield Shield draw for coming summer. And I got one back saying, very interested in your offer, um, happy to talk more. He thought I was offering him a job because I would, it could please advise advise if if available. Yeah. And he thought, buddy, the ABC station in Perth, little Drew Morfitt might have been offering him a gig. And he was probably, you know, getting a gig here, there and everywhere and a bit in the back pocket and a bit in the right <laughs> pocket and whatever else. And when the boss came in the next day and I showed it to him, he roared laughing. He held his sides laughing and got in touch with Richie. And, you know, it, it was... It was just a misunderstanding, but uh, that, was, that was little me at about the age of 21, uh, dealing with Richie, former Great Australian Test
1: Captain. <laughs> we'll talk more about you as a young man and the transition from Perth over to Victoria, where you've made your home. On the other side of the break, we're speaking to one of Australia's broadcasting legends, Drew Morford, and it is a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Listening to this is your sporting life with Peter Donnegan for Tobin Brothers funerals, celebrating lives. Wonderful to have your company on This Is Your Sporting Life, the Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives and a true legend of the broadcasting caper in Australia, Australian sport, and he's a worldwide legend because Australian sports broadcasters are as good as any in the world. Would you go along with that, Drew Morphin?
0: I would, absolutely. Um, Yeah, Actually, over the years, I've quite uh, liked... New Zealand broadcasters people might hate me saying that but I think uh, they cover various sports pretty well but no the Aussies are right up there
1: Was there one as a young man who um, when you listened to him you thought I'd like to be like him and did you model yourself on on a particular person
0: it was Jim Fitzmaurice who was my boss in Perth and uh, he finished up becoming a big wheel at Channel 9 and then a director of the company uh, with a bloke named Mike Watts who distributes the rights for for major sporting events worldwide. All test cricket, um, Gee, Olympics, um, whatever else. Actually, Mike Watts, he owned outright a horse that was favourite in the Melbourne Cup and ran second. And if I had a better memory, I'll be able to tell you what his name was. An English horse. Uh, It might have run second to Ollie the day he won on Media Puzzle. Ah, now... Uh,
1: Anyway. mr Pruden ran third in that race you've oh, got me what ran so we'll find out yeah anyway we'll
0: so j- so jim was a director of that company um in his years after the abc and after channel nine but he was my boss in perth i got to perth when i was 20 and um jim was trim taut and terrific looked fantastic on television delivered it beautifully commentated olympics footy test cricket and all that sort of stuff and as a matter of fact I've been mistaken for him a few times. His his voice might have been a little bit similar, um, but uh, gee, some of his calls were, were were legendary. He was he was at the Olympics in '72 in Munich for, and he had a view from his room of the blokes with the hoods and the guns and all that sort of stuff, and he was live. Uh, into Perth uh, for today, tonight, it's 7.30 at night or something. Um, He's pretty much woken up and they rang him and said, tell me what's going on. He said, what do you mean what's going on? It was... You know, five o'clock in the morning or six in the morning for him, and um, he finished up opening the curtain and pretty much describing it uh, live on television into prime time in Perth. I he was he was a beauty, Jim, and so um, I still keep in touch with him. Um, um, he'd be a fair age now. I know that because I'm a fair age. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, you're going all right. You haven't changed much over the years. By the way, um, Andy, who's in the studio with us, Mr. Pruden ran second in that race. Oh. Beekeeper ran third. Was okay. that the horse? No,
0: no, right. it wasn't. No, I reckon it was a one-word name, English Horse. Uh, It's going to drive you mad now, isn't it? Sorry I brought it up, really? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Let's get back to your broadcasting career. So
1: all of a sudden, you go from Sydney to Perth, you do the apprenticeship in Perth. How did you come to come
0: over this side of the country? Well, um, I applied for a job on a it was called the uh, National Sporting Unit at the time because the program didn't have a name, but the name finished up being Sports Night. So I joined this documentary program called Sports Night, whose host was a bloke named Frank Mills. Another reporter was a bloke named David Hill, uh, who's become big overseas. And you know he left and uh, he instituted the the telecast for World Series cricket and as a matter of fact uh, (laughs) he didn't know much about cricket uh, but he knew a fair bit about television. He said, we're going to televise it from both ends. I said, you can't do that. People want to know that Lily's bowling downwind and Alderman's into the wind with the breeze, swinging it away to slip and all that sort of stuff. He said I couldn't care less. People are sick and tired of watching wicket keepers' asses, so we're <laughs> going to be we're going to be televising cricket from both ends. So, you know, I disagreed. Guess who was right? Uh, and now every country in the world who televises cricket does it that way. Uh, then he got snapped up by Rupert Murdoch, and so he lives in Los Angeles in this you know uh, walled village and whatever else. And as a matter of fact, I believe the last. Giggy he did was the um uh, the academy awards oh really he, he yeah rupert got him in to do that um, um uh, the singing show um uh, america
1: oh there's only about 28 of them yeah but america's got talent
0: or something like that uh, yeah,
1: x factor or
0: well um, the america's, voice america's got talent i think yeah yeah um and, uh, you know, he's, he, so he was the executive producer of that because the ratings went down. And so Rupert said, get in, rescue that. So, you know, he's been that sort of a bloke. So I worked on Sports Night with Hilly, um, uh, a, a lady named Mary Della Hunty who yes. became a minister in the, the Victorian government. Um, and I was there for about uh, two and a half years. Uh, it finished up being a program... Uh, it, it got away from major sporting events. It's st- It started off being a magazine program, so you might have uh, three eight-minute stories or something in a, in a half hour, that sort of thing. Um, and it got away to uh, one subject, half hour, sort of pretty ma- major documentaries. And I thought, what am I doing? I've come over here to be a sports commentator. I'm not a Cecil B. DeMille. I was no filmmaker. Um, I jumped out of a plane once and did a parachuting story and uh, did a whitewater rafting story in Tasmania and...
1: Huh. Oh, look out. Do, do I shout? Do I shout? You know who that is? Well, that's a slab. That's David Hill who's on the phone. <laughs> when the phone goes
0: off to the studio, <laughs> yeah, that's you got to shout everybody. Thank right. not many here. <laughs> Good
1: day for us then, Andy, by the look of it. Yeah. Anyway, you were saying...
0: Um, <laughs> so I was, I was working in this documentary program for about two and a half years. You know, some of the stories I did, uh, Jeff Thompson uh, catching wild pigs in country New South Wales. And that was the story where he said, I want to see uh, batsmen's blood on the pitch and all that sort of stuff. So we sold that uh, little program to uh, the BBC. David Hill's just left a and message, and so, yes. And so before, before they got to England uh, for the 1975 World Cup and then played some test matches as well, uh, you know, Tomo was this villain. Look out for this madman from the Antipodes coming over to see the Pommies' blood spilled on the pitch. Did you was- face Tomo? At one stage? I did. I, I did. What happened there? I went up to do a story with him. He was living in Brisbane and he got this big contract to work for 4IP and it was, oh, you know, 480000 I, I don't know whether it was a year or for 10 years or whatever. It was the equivalent of what Buddy Franklin got to go to Sydney, you know, all those years ago. So we went up and did a story. Uh, we did a story called uh, Cash on Delivery what some of these cricketers were earning away from the game of cricket so here's was tomo and 4ip anyway we uh, there was a plane strike and we couldn't get back so we'd done all the filming he had this blue ferrari and we were roaring around the ferrari and all that water skiing on the brisbane river and stuff like that and uh anyway the, the airstrike we couldn't get back so um the cameraman the sound recordist and i stayed at tomo's place for about three days unable to get out. Well, you know, filming done, so we enjoyed ourselves and went to the pub. A f- and A few libations. Yeah, and-, and so this day we had a few libations and like a couple of, <laughs> few jugs. And Tomo said, oh, I think I'll go down to the Gabba and have a bit of a hit in Sam Trimble's indoor nets. Oh, yeah, i will come down as well. So he put on the pads and a few blokes bowled to him and I bowled my little left arm dibbly-dobblies and, you know, he had a bit of a hit for about, 10 minutes and then he said no, I think I might have a bowl He said, get the pads on I said oh, turn it up <laughs> I've had half a jug of beer well, probably a hole and I'm facing uh, the great uh, J.R. Thompson uh, he said, oh, said I'll just roll the arm over well the, the first ball he bowled me he did roll the arm over and I don't know I just got on the front foot and hit it right in the middle of the bat and belted it past him and that's it, not a good idea no and it, oh, it bounced off the back wall and Tomo's thought oh, actually, this bloke must be able to handle a bat. And the next one was about three times as quick. Yeah. I said, I'm out of here. See you later. I faced two deliveries <laughs> because I thought it was going to be Brett Lee all over again with what he did with that Pommy bloke a couple of summers ago.
1: Oh, yes, Piers Morgan. Yeah. Oh, that was crazy. Was. That really was crazy. Yeah. That could have been terribly dangerous. Well,
0: he even cleaned up Warney. Yeah. That's un-Australian,
1: isn't it? Oh, I think it is. Mm. Uh, cricket. When you talk about cricket, your eyes light up. Yeah. You loved broadcasting it. You love the game. Yeah. It's not an easy sport to broadcast because there is quite often 45 seconds to a minute when nothing's happening mm. between deliveries and then maybe a couple of minutes, sometimes the way they play it these days, four minutes between overs. Yeah. So you've got to do a lot of chatting in between. It's not broadcasting sport in the traditional sense, is it? It's more like a six
0: or seven hour conversation. It's a conversation, yeah. And so you're 20 minutes on and 40 minutes off. And so it uh, is to your advantage if on the 40 minutes off you don't just goof off and think nothing, you might actually think of a few things that you might say. Whether you might talk music, your favourite song, uh, you know, whatever. And it does help to have a bloke with you. You can bounce off. Look, you and I could broadcast the cricket all day mm. because you and I have been great mates. We we're just rattle on. Um, but Kerry O'Keefe, I mean, you, you could have a bit of fun with with him. Um, uh, I was a bit different with Roebuck because uh, he was that brilliant. It was like we were in a different stratosphere. I'm dumb, and he is brilliant. And uh, as a matter of fact, Jim Maxwell said to me, in we were in uh, uh, Cape Town when he died, and uh, we had a bit of a wake, and on the next day, uh, Jimmy said to me, uh, as a matter of fact, Roebuck said that... Uh, he bowled you a few bounces, metaphorically, mm. uh, early in your your. your- Combination with him on the on the radio, and he worked out that you couldn't handle it. So after that, he bowled you lots of half volleys, and uh, you know I, he was kind from that point of view because he could he could talk about the molecular makeup of the you know the surface of Mars or something like that. He was unreal, mm. and I just couldn't go with that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah, you can rattle on. But it, cricket's this game where it can be so fast and so slow. I mean, I remember the day uh, against India about three or four, four years ago at the SCG when Michael Clark made 329 not out. Now, it was fantastic, and he was clubbing them all over the place and driving through the covers and whatever else. But, you know, when you go from 130 to 140 and then 220 to 260, it's a hell of a long time. And that was the day we actually had the uh, chilies. In the commentary uh, box, Do you I know was, the chilli story. I was
1: listening. I sent you a text message that day. Yeah. Could you give us the brief version of the chilli story with um, Harsha Boglay yeah. in the box?
0: Well, I met some blokes down, sitting down in the noble stand, in front of the commentary box, and this bloke grows chillies in his backyard. And he said the the hottest chilli in the world, according to the Guinness Book of Records, is a Naga 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 chilli. He said, "Go up and and see if uh, Harsha Boglay will eat one of those on the on the air." Because you're fully expecting that Harsha would pass out, so, <laughs> so I finished my stint and I said, "Well, that's the end of my, my 20 minutes." Uh, and joining Kerry O'Keefe now is Harsha Bogle. and I put the little box of chilies right in front, and I said, hey, "Go on, go on, away you go." So the two of them, as you know, Michael Clark went to 314 and 317. And whack, whack, whack. Anyway, Harsha said, "No, no, I don't eat hot chilies." even though he's an Indian. And Kerry said, well, I'm not eating the bloody things. Anyway, the, it's amazing how people are listening to the cricket while they're mm. watching the cricket, and they're all onto it. And pretty much the whole of the Noble stand started to chant, eat the chilies, eat the chilies!" And they were looking away from the cricket up to the commentary box. It was an absolute riot. It filled about 20 minutes mm. while Michael Clark just peeled off another you know, 20 runs that were just ridiculous. Uh, it filled a whole 20-minute uh, commentary stint. It just was just sensational. Brilliant radio. Brilliant yeah, yeah.
1: entertainment. Yeah. Well, take a break, Morphe. That's uh, the way that I refer... I did, uh, when was the PD last time I Morfay. called you Drew? I Never. don't know. Uh, but we are going to take a break, and when we come back on the other side of the break, I want to talk to Drew about a program that made him famous around Australia. you probably heard of it. It's called The Winners. And it's even made a comeback. That's on the other side of the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life on 1116 SEN for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter donigan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Thanks for your company on another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Drew Morfitt, broadcasting legend, is my guest in the studio. Drew, the winners. Mm. How did that come about?
0: Well, um, I hadn't very long been in Melbourne, got here in well, got here in '74 to do that documentary program, and got back into the sports department in '77. '77 was the first year of the winners, and it was devised by our sporting supervisor Dick Mason, uh, who unashamedly uh, pinched the format of the show from the Big Match, which was the uh, the commercial version of uh, English. Soccer, uh, Premier League Soccer, First Division, whatever it was called in those days, with Brian Moore. Um, anyway, so uh, it, had a f- it had a few different hosts early. And I wasn't the original host. I might have been about the third. Paul Sheehan did it, oh, I think, at one stage, didn't he? The ABC was keen to make Paul Sheehan a summer and a winter personality. He's obviously doing cricket. So they made him the host. But he wasn't seeing any footy because of school commitments or something. Um, anyway, it didn't last very long. David Grant, mm. who finished up being the... Well, didn't finish up, but he he was the interviewer on World Series cricket. Yes. Where you had to say to Ian Chappell, you've just made a first ball. Oh, huh? what'd you make of that? What a great job <laughs> he had. <laughs> uh, and I suppose I I took over... Um, you know, I got the tap on the shoulder from Dick, and he said, you know, I was commentating the games, and I was the associate producer, so I was in the editing process and everything, and he said, oh, you could bloody host this, so... I don't know, it might have been, I don't know, two months into the first season or something, I finished up hosting it, so... uh... Of all the things
1: you have done, is that probably the thing that made you best known right across Australia?
0: Uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, Especially in Western Australia. Mm. They loved it over there, because there were so many West Aussies playing in the VFL, as it was at the time, and um, South Australians to a large extent, but West Australians to a massive extent. I mean, I could walk down the street in Melbourne when I was hosting that program. Nobody knew me because it was all um, the big league and Peter Landy and Lou Richards and all that sort of stuff. Channel 7 was dominating. So this was... The ABC show was a bit of a... Spare part in Victoria, but in in South Australia and Western Australia, that's how they got their VFL footy, and that's that's all they got. So it was a religion over in WA.
1: And the tape actually had to go on a plane, did it not, and fly yeah. across to WA.
0: It did. Yeah. yeah, we'd we'd record the show on a Saturday night, and it uh, took the uh, the early morning flight over to Perth, and uh, went to air at Sunday afternoon about five o'clock. And I've I've broadcast with blokes like. Craig Starsevich, he said, uh, geez, I, we used to have uh, mass Sunday afternoon and the priest would say, but, uh, boys, final hymn, you've got 20 minutes to get home and watch the winners. <laughs> <laughs> so the boys were, you know, 14-year-olds all charging home to watch the winners and, of course, the priest was as well. Another story was Bill Walker, who won three Sandover medals, Billy Walker, he owned a couple of big pubs and the big deal in Western Australia was the Sunday sessions where they had a lunchtime session then the pub had closed down, then an evening session. And he said, it's the best thing for the pub industry of all time, the winners, because all he had to do was put up a big screen, and he said, I'd be selling thousands of jugs a minute. Mm. It was huge. So, mm.
1: What about the transition from the ABC, where you'd spent so much time, and then all of a sudden... Football goes back to Channel 7 after they lost it for a year yeah. and you go to Channel 7. Was it a bit of a, a shock to go into the commercial world after all those years at the ABC?
0: Well, I was really flattered that they asked me and it was a, it was a shock to go in there. Mind you, Pete, it nearly killed me because we we're all smokers. Remember that, <laughs> yes. Remember that little office? There was yes. about nine of us all smoking. Peter Landy, he used to... Uh, he didn't like it very much, no. He'd have the window open on a day when the hail was coming in sideways <laughs> just to survive. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Channel 7 was... Uh, Um, I didn't realise how hard it was going to have to work because we had to do programs to fill half-time breaks and all that. So we were doing news stories during the week and not stockpiling, but doing three- and four-minute stories for the half-time filler. Um, So by the time you got to the game, you'd you'd, you'd had a week all right Um, and you'd be flying interstate and all that. Uh, it It was exciting. It was great being
1: at seven. Yeah, a mm. very exciting time. Um, when they had the football back, um, they certainly made a big effort um, because I think a lot of people at Seven saw it as their God-given right that they were going to have the football. Mm. And then mm. 1987 happened yeah. and they thought, well, we better do something about this.
0: Yeah, and the launch of it, at the start of 88 was just unbelievable. Mm. Um, the, the champagne and the decorations, it was in the studio at uh, Dorker Street and we came out of, from behind a curtain into this blaring any his spotlight and welcome Sandy Roberts and welcome Peter Landy and mm-hmm. welcome Drew Morphin and Dennis Cometti and all it was oh, felt like a, a bit of a I did feel a, a bit of a rock star and then of course there was the story about how we used to be picked up by uh, chauffeur driven cars yes. and taken to grounds and let's say if I was doing a game at Waverley and I'd be doing it with uh, Peter McKenna and Don Scott we'd each have a car pick us up so three separate cars would pick us up at home, drive out to Waverley and then after the game, all three cars would be there to drive us back home with a bloke with a peak cap and everything. It lasted about four weeks I think (laughs) because (laughs) the the limo company found out that Scacy wasn't paying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll take a break. As I said, we need three hours for this. We've only got one so we've got one segment to go with Drew Morford. That's coming up after the break on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives with Drew Morford. Drew, how many Olympics?
0: Six. First one? 84 in LA for ABC Radio. Um, I honestly thought I was ready to go at least... one Olympics or maybe two before that so having started in 66 I had to wait 18 years before my first Olympic trip but um Great experience. Uh, called a gold medal. Uh, the men's team pursuit. They beat the Yanks. The Yanks had won everything. They cheated like mad. All the, the talk at the moment is the Russians and the track and field mm. Russians. Well, the American cyclists in 84 were just a disgrace. They hadn't won a gold medal in over 100 years, and all of a sudden they were winning everything. And when we stitched them up in the team pursuit, it was fantastic. So, yeah, I'll never forget, never forget 84.
1: You've called some fast people in your time over uh, the journey at the Olympic Games. You weren't very quick in one particular aspect of your life, though, and that was with your beautiful now wife, Kaz, <laughs> who was your partner for a very long time, mm-hmm. and then I think it actually took until, was it not your 40th birthday? It was. That you decided to pop the
0: question. You were there. I was. Big night, big night at it Silvers. It was large, yes. My 40th birthday, and uh, I thought to myself, well, maybe 40 is you know there's enough years to be single. Um, I, I always thought, well... I'll I'll outlast my father. He was 38 when he got married. Now, Prince Charles is about the same age as me, and he bugging things up by marrying Di. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, gee, the pressure's on. So at my 40th, yes, I asked her if she'd marry me. And I hadn't really thought it out, but uh, she did say yes. And then Mm -hmm. to try and sort of get a honeymoon in was pretty hard when you're doing football seasons and all that sort of stuff. My birthday's in August. Anyway... As it transpired, it was worked out that we had to get married before sort of February when footy pre-season and all that. So I got married on the last day of the Australian Open tennis, which is quite a big day on the sports calendar Reasonably. for Channel 7. Yes. <laughs> they didn't like me too much. <laughs> <for that. laughs> yeah.
1: And the partnership has gone on since then. Yeah. Um, and Kaz, thankfully, is well now because she had a period where things were not so good.
0: Yep. She uh, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, she didn't even seek a second opinion. She said, right, get them out. And uh, so uh, she went through the operation and it was horrendous, but um, just been remarkable. I mean, some people uh, get lucky with the treatment they get. Uh, her surgeon... Uh, I could mention her name, but I probably won't. Um, she was just absolutely sensational. And uh, so Kaz is completely over it, and forgotten all about it, and just getting on with life.
1: We often bump into people in our lives who are meant to be together. You see a couple and you think, you two are meant to be together. Yeah? I don't reckon I know a couple more like that than you and Kaz.
0: God, you should see sometimes on a Friday night when we've had enough of each other. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I haven't seen that, but I've <laughs> no, seen... No, we, yeah, we go, yeah, OK. I've got a couple of questions that I want to ask you in closing. One's a serious one. Do you harbour any bitterness towards the ABC for what went on at the end of last year that now sees you um, away from the ABC, still calling football for 6PR and also for AFL Live? Yeah. But did you
0: really... <sighs> Did the ABC do the wrong thing by? You? Well, I think they did, and I accused them of uh, of. Uh Targeting me because of my age, and they said, "No, no, it's absolutely, it's not age-related whatsoever. Um, it's just budget cuts, and you know something had to give." And you know, I argued for a while. The, the bitterness is gone. Uh, you know, I've gotten over it um, because look, look, there's plenty of people in the mining game, the car industry. Uh, you know, people are getting the sack left, right, and centre, and skimming along the footpath on their ass. And I'm just one of those. So, um, you know, I was, I was. Uh, Very disappointed at the time. I'm saying, why me? I'm doing test cricket, league football, uh, Olympic Games. Christ, you know, find somebody else. Mm. Um, And it's not as though I was earning a fortune and was costing him a lot. But anyway, there you go.
1: Last question. When you sit back, if you ever retire, and I don't think you ever will because I hope you don't because you're Mm. too good at what you do, but when you sit back and reflect over your great career and all of the different sports and all of the different events... Give me the one where if you listen to it back, you would say to yourself, you got that right, my boy. You nailed that one.
0: Um, don't know whether I've ever called anything that I thought that was absolutely terrific. Gee, what a good call, you beauty. Pat myself on the back. What's the closest but, you've come then? Uh, actually, the game that gets a, gets a run a few times is the first Essendon-Collingwood-Anzac Day game in 95, which was the draw and uh, I've seen it back a few times and I'm thinking I reckon I did okay there's just I think there was the right balance of a few stats and, and excitement and accuracy of the call and stuff like that um, I was surprised to get the gig on a big game like that um, because you know usually Cometti's name would come out of that or Sandy whatever um, and uh, I did that with Peter McKenna who's a terrific bloke great mate of mine still um, but yeah, I'm pretty happy with the way that that went. And others might say, oh, "I saw that. That was rubbish." But whatever. But the the, the game the the broadcast that thrills me the most, that makes my hair stand on end, is reasonably recent. And uh, that was the London Olympics. And uh, honestly, the the women's sprint, uh, Australia versus In- Great Britain. The Brits had absolutely towed us up in everything. And when Anna Mears went past <sighs> Pendleton, it was just phenomenal and it, oh, it was a great memory. Yeah, mm.
1: spine-tingling. Yeah. Uh, moments that you'll never forget being mm. a part of. I started this chat by saying that you're a broadcasting legend, and you are. You have the OAM to prove it, but you also have the respect of all of the people that you work with over the years. It's been great to sit down for an hour to have a chat to you. I wish it was three. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, PD. And don't forget, you can uh, catch us at the same time next week, same place, right here on 1116 SEN for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals.